I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk U.S.-EU trade, U.S.-U.K. trade, and today is You Smacka signing day. All this and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, today is Usmaka signing day here in the nation's capital. Oddly, at the very moment we're recording this podcast, uh, the White House is hosting the signing ceremony. So, yeah. uh, so it's a benchmark day for the Trump administration. It was part of the president's cam- campaign in uh, 2016. One of his leading campaign pledges was to renegotiate the NAFTA, which is now accomplished. And uh, it's uh, it's not complete, This is, but this is the important sort of concluding step for the U.S. Scott, explain to us why this isn't complete, because the optics of this are that, you know, this is signing day. It's a big deal. It's kind of like... When Joe Burrow is going to sign that letter that says he accepts the Cincinnati Bengals and he enters the most competitive division in the NFL, uh, the AFC North, where he's going to compete against the Baltimore Ravens, Cleveland Browns, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yes. We That's wish, the most competitive division? It, oh, yeah. It will be, yes. will be. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so we wish uh, Joe Burrow the best. Yeah. But uh, in this particular case, there are three parties to the USMCA, and one of the three has yet to ratify. That's Canada. Right. So okay. uh, now we don't anticipate any problems. Uh, the, the Trudeau government is a minority government, but there have been pledges from the conservatives to not obstruct the ratification process. So, uh, but but they have their own process in Parliament. Uh, it's probably going to be March till it's done. That's the rumor. March. Yeah. yeah so so yeah. It's 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 not far away, but it's it's still not not complete. So so now once all three economies ratify the agreement, then it has to. There's a process of sort of often called a legal scrub, but there's a there's a set of everybody looks at the commitments and figures out what they have to do to implement all the obligations of the and and then share results with each other about what laws need to be changed, who's going to do what, what regulations need to be uh, promulgated. And so over the over the course of it's usually 3 to 6 months work including all the translations that have to take effect and everything else. Uh, since Canada has two official languages and Mexico has, has a different one than, than we do. So uh, there, there, there are some there are some sort of administrative things that have to happen. Uh, so that takes sort of three to six months after the final ratification is done by Canada. I think the, they've set a goal, the USTR has set a goal of having it go into effect in July. And they may or may not make that. So and, and Canada is not necessarily in a rush here because they're continuing to enjoy – the NAFTA relationship. Well, that's right. And in, in most circumstances, when you- Because NAFTA is still in effect until na- this takes over. Correct. And, and that, 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 that's, that, in, that, that reduced incentive is usually different. Usually when you sign a preferential agreement, you go from ordinary trade terms to better trade terms. You've got an incentive to get the, get the process done. In this case, for 85% of the traded goods and services, uh, this is not much of a change, if any. So- so this has taken now uh, three years to get done, right? 
Yes, and it's been like over 400 days since the signing, since the negotiations ended. So you had a year and a half of negotiations and will be a year and a half post the signing, post the completion of negotiations. And this underscores why you know, Bill always says you can't just flip the switch on trade agreements and turn them on and turn them off so quickly because there's so much work that goes into mm-hmm. it. So this really right. underscores your point, Bill. It takes a long time. The negotiation takes time. And it's been – this is actually relatively quick compared to – some of them. Yes. But, um, you know, there's so much interest now in, in trade and in the, in the process of trade, particularly in Congress. This one had to go through Congress was one of the reasons why it, it took so long. I mean, the, the Japan phase one was, you know, negotiated and signed and implemented, what, in the space of eight or nine months uh, yeah, because, because it didn't have to go to Congress. It did not change U.S. laws. So, so but Congress with all the level of interest now, you have to make sure that all your uh, T's are crossed, I's dotted, and you know. And as we've talked about here, numerous times, this was a case where there was very extensive uh, bipartisan congressional involvement. A lot of people had a lot to say about it, and the bill uh, that implements the the agreement uh, and went through a number of changes at the insistence of various members of Congress. So it was a, a complicated process. So big victory for. President Trump or no? What do you guys well, think? Well, oddly, it's about 90 percent of the Congress voted in favor of it, which yeah. is an unusual bipartisan success. Got to be a big uh, victory and, for Trump then. And unusual for, for trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I went back and looked at the Uruguayans Agreements Act in 1994 was the last vote that was this uh, – in the, of this magnitude, this overwhelming support for it. I think it's a tribute to Bob Lighthizer who – uh, had gone, you know, was on the finance committee staff the same time when I was working for a member and knows very well what needs to be done to get congressional sign-off on these things. Uh, and I thought he managed the process uh, really brilliantly. He knew who the key actors were and he knew uh, how to get their attention and he knew how to uh, make sure that their concerns were were both heard and, and addressed. I give him a lot of a lot of credit for that. The president will say, you know, already has said, it's the greatest agreement in the history of humankind. Uh, the ITC analysis done, what, 11 months ago suggests, uh, you know, in not economic so terms, <laughs> not, not so much, not so much. <laughs> uh, marginal improvement. But, uh, you know, there are upgrades in it. Uh, and there is a little bit more dairy access for us in Canada. Uh, there's some uh, auto rules that are going to uh, cause a lot of confusion and difficulty for a lot of companies. Uh, but, you know, I think net it's a positive. Now, I've argued about that with uh, my uh, friends at uh, the Peterson Institute, for example, who, who think it's a net negative because the, um, the, the, the tariffs are already zero. So there's no, there's no gain there and that they think the, uh, the uh, auto rule changes are a net negative. So the whole thing for them uh, takes on a kind of a, a negative cast. I'm more optimistic than that. I think it's a good thing. Well, you're absolutely right that uh, Ambassador Lighthizer deserves full full credit as the both the leader and the honest broker throughout all this. He wound up be, having the confidence of the other negotiating parties, Mexico and Canada, as well as the Congress. So it's a it's a great achievement for him. But while we're saying nice things, uh, I have to, of course, say something nice about the Democrats. Uh, they exercised, I think, remarkable restraint in this whole exercise, uh, and focused the debate on the contents of the agreement and not on 50 other things that they could have put on the table. Uh, And their demands were – really didn't cross red lines for the administration. You know, they focused on what they thought needed to be done. They were consistent. They were true to their goals and they kept themselves in check and they deserve some credit for that too. 
Okay, I got a prediction, and you heard it first here. Lighthizer better be careful, or he's going to end up as the next White House Chief of Staff. You heard it first here. Oh my goodness! Not not an irrational projection, right? Uh, it, it could be, you know, the kiss of death for him. I Perhaps think. a fate, fate worse than death. You right. never know. <laughs> you never know. But but he, this, this I, is just well, my gut feeling here. One of the things I give him credit for, and if you this comes out frequently when he testifies, because people are asking him, always ask him to make comments on other things, yeah. uh, and he won't. He right. has been ferocious in saying, I am sticking to my lane. I am negotiating trade agreements. I'm not going to talk about this other stuff. And he, one of the reasons he's still there, I think, is because he's been relentless in doing that. Let's move on to the U.S. and the EU. What about it, guys? What's happening there? We had a big moment last week when we had Phil Hogan, the EU trade commissioner, who gave his first public speech here at CSIS. Um, you hosted him, Bill. Where are we with USEU now that we're going to turn away from USMACA for a while? Well, I think there's a slight note of optimism. I'm gloomy about the long term, but we may be heading towards a small deal, a little bit like the Japanese deal. And Hogan did something sim- something significant when he was here. Uh, and then he did it again four days later when he was in Davos, which is he opened the agriculture door just a crack. You know, this had been sitting since Juncker and Trump negotiated their piece of paper July 27th, 2018, which, of course, was a great victory for two days. And then somebody pointed out to the president that it didn't say anything about agriculture, um, which the Europeans regarded as a great victory. But the president then was reminded by many, many people in Congress that uh, if you don't bring something back on agriculture, you're not going to get very far. And the administration has spent the last year and a half telling the EU, you have to do something on agriculture if you want to have a negotiation. And the EU has spent the last 18 months gloating, saying, you didn't put it in, we win. Hogan, I think, to his great credit, realized that that we're not going to get started unless something moves. And he opened the door by saying, one, uh, there are some areas where we, the Europeans, can accept American sanitary and phytosanitary standards, which means we can accept your products and recognize them as being sufficiently healthy and safe for ours. And he identified uh, some areas, seafood, which is actually in their mandate, uh, shellfish, and then later on is talked about apples and pears. This is small, not cheese because it's not on the list, but you know, small pears, small apples. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's significant because before the door was shut, and now it's open a crack. Now our agriculture secretary, Sonny Perdue, is in the Netherlands and Belgium this week saying, not good enough. It's ironic. He's saying they have to take our chickens and our beef. It's a little bit ironic somebody named Perdue is demanding chickens. Yeah. But, uh, you no, know. And, no relation, by the way. Well, that. <laughs> it's a, it's a not different of Purdue. the Perdue chicken family of, right. Mar- of Salisbury, Maryland. That's right. Different Perdue. And he's got a good point. Uh, not going to happen. But uh, in a way, this is a good development because now they are arguing about what should be in and what should be out. Before they were arguing simply, no agriculture, end of story. Now it's, okay, there's going to be some agriculture in. Let's talk about what that will be. I think that's a good sign. If we stick to a small package, which is not, we're not going to get chicken, uh, my favorite subject, as you all, all listeners all know, I don't think we're going to get chicken or, or big commodity crops, but we can get we can make some inroads. If they start accepting U.S. standards, 
on some things. It makes it easier to get them to accept U.S. standards on other things going forward. Small package of manufacturing tariff cuts and uh, some progress on this mysterious issue called conformity assessment, which really means that we agree to recognize each other's test data and inspection procedures so everybody, uh, manufacturers, don't have to do everything twice. That's not big. It's not a bonanza. But it's not nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah, look, the big picture of U.S.-Europe trade is a very, you know, large and highly productive trading and investment relationship. So, in, in particularly in industrial goods, there's a tremendous amount of two-way trade in industrial goods. There's massive cross-investment in the markets. And that's all very productive, good for, good for us, good for the Europeans. Uh, and then what, we, what do we fight about? We fight about the old issues, in particular agriculture and agriculture standards. And we fight about the new issues, the digital economy. And so th- this, is, this has been the characteristic now for at least 10 years. And it's why TTIP got stuck. That's really what it comes down to. And it's, a, it's an odd argument to someone not specialized in this because if you look at you know, food safety standards, for instance, are, are designed to deliver uh, the scientific standard is reasonable certainty of no harm. That whatever the production methods are and the processing methods are, it's reasonably certain not to harm the intended consumer, the, the human being that consumes it. Both the United States and Europe have, have food standards that deliver a reasonable certainty of no harm. The food supply in Europe is very safe. Food supply in the United States is safe. The numbers bear that out. But they're different. And they're different at some very basic levels. And food regulators have no international constituency. Their constituency is entirely domestic. Well, you, they're, they're driven by domestic law, which doesn't tell them to look at what the other, what the foreigners Precisely. are Precisely. And Congress is unlikely to tell them to do it the foreigner's way. So give me an example of what we're talking about here with the U.S. We seem to be obsessed with chlorinated chicken. What is that all about? It's standard practice in America to wash raw chickens in a chlorine wash uh, simply to kill germs. Yeah. And this has long been recognized as a safe procedure. Same reason you use chlorine in swimming pools. It kills, kills bacteria. And there, there, while there's no bacteria inside the, the, the processed piece of chicken, you've got to deal with the, the outside, which is open to air and they're subject to contamination. Banned in Europe. They don't allow it there. I'm not entirely sure why. They also have something that Scott didn't mention, which is uh, an adherence to the precautionary principle which is, in a sense, the reverse of what Scott was articulating because the precautionary principle says basically um, we can ban it unless you can prove it's safe. Uh, And the U.S. approach has tended to be in the absence of of evidence that it's harmful, it's okay. And that is really a fundamental divide which for 30 years we've been unable to bridge. And that's why the, any progress that we make on this stuff is going to be modest because they and right. it, because in Europe it is not only an article of faith with uh, regulators, <clears throat> it is an article of faith with consumers. Yeah, and the precaution standard has, among other things, prevented Europe from approving genetically modified uh, uh, grains and corn uh, and uh, and soybeans. Um, now, gene modified products have been in the U.S. food supply for about twenty five years. There's absolutely zero cases of harm uh, from from consumption of this, but yet uh, there's there minority when it comes to the precautionary principle. Minority science 
it seems to qualify. Usually, scientific consensus is formed, and you out, you you reject the outliers. Okay, they the, the outliers have a much larger voice in their process. Well, there's a bigger issue that underlies this too, and. There's poll data on this, and I think one of the reasons that uh, I've always thought that TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which was an Obama administration, administration initiative, one of the reasons it didn't go very far is because it had more resistance in Europe than it had in the United States. In fairness, I think our our anti-trade folk were all too busy opposing TPP. But uh, the fact is, in Europe, in, at the consumer level, at the individual level, there's a lot of people who felt that a comprehensive trade agreement with the United States would be a giant regulatory downgrade, that their standards are higher than ours, and that a trade agreement means they would have to accept less safe automobiles, less safe chemicals, and less safe chickens. And there's a and that's that's still a view. There's a real yes, reluctance that, there. That's right. A feeling yeah, regardless that, of the facts, that yeah. the safety is re, is basically equal in both markets. So let me ask you this: Are there too many ongoing disputes between the U.S. and the EU to uh, for a real reset to take place? For for a big agreement, yes, there are, and I'm still gloomy. I think as we been describing, I think the window is now open a crack for a small agreement. Now, the problem then becomes typically overreach. You know, Secretary Perdue goes over there and says, we got to have chickens. We got to have beef. Well, you know, Hogan's going to come back. And I mean, he laid out his game plan when he was here. He's going to come back and say, well, you have to repeal the Jones Act, uh, which allow our shippers to make, you know, port to port visits along the, along the U.S. Uh, coast. And uh, you have to allow more uh, government procurement of EU products. Uh, which are two things the United States does not want to talk about. So if we get into the business of piling unacceptable things onto the table, then it's all going to come crashing down. Now, Hogan also criticized the U.S.-China trade deal phase one. Why did he do that? I think it's because he believes – well, he was careful in saying they hadn't come to any conclusions. I think he believes it may be trade diverting that uh, because the Chinese have committed to buy so much stuff from them, from us, that means that they will compensate for that uh, by buying less from uh, other people, including the EU, and, and not so much just the same stuff because it's not always stuff that the EU sells, but simply to keep basically the books in balance, they're going to have to buy less from some other parties in order to compensate for the money they're paying the Right. Americans. This is particularly the case in industrial goods where you know Europe and the United States both export very similar kinds of industrial goods. Machines tools being a really good example. Basically, all the machine tools in the world are made in, in the United States, Europe, and Japan. And, and so the, the, you compete for export market share among those three uh, among those three sources of supply, if China is is operating against a set of numerical commitments, okay, they're going to have some decisions to make. And if they start making it on machines tools, more American tools means fewer European tools. Doesn't trade diversion usually happen though when countries enter into some kind of free trade agreement? You know, why is this any different? Well, it's different, I think, first of all, because it's managed trade. Uh, it's not uh, countries agreeing to lower barriers to each other, which can produce div diversion because if, if you're lowering a barrier, you know, if, if country A is lowering its tariffs uh, on you, you're going to sell more stuff to A, which may mean you'll sell less stuff to B, C, and D, but in the normal market uh, sense. Here is a case of uh, not yet public explicit commitments where the Chinese say, we're going to buy this quantity of stuff from you. 
And that's different from other agreements. Yeah, look, it is a you know, trade diversion is a common criticism of preferential agreements of all sorts. So you enter into a free trade agreement with your neighbors, they get better tra- trade terms than similarly situated countries, and there likely would be some trade diversion. But it's trade diversion that is driven by the markets. It's just the result of lowering the barriers, and, and in fact creates an incentives for further lowering of barriers. This is what Bob Zelik, when he was U.S. Trade Representative, uh, called competitive liberalization. Uh, the, the approach we've taken with the Chinese is, is purely quantitative. You have to buy this much U.S. stuff. All right. right. And, and uh, so there's no, there's no liberating ratchet on this one. Now, to be, to be fair about it, Lighthizer says this does not contravene WTO rules uh, and that anybody who complains will have no case. Uh, we'll see. I mean, they, they, he could be right. We don't have enough details to know the answer We don't know how they're going to implement it, really. And, and until we know that, we won't know. And actually, China has said the same thing. China says it, it will not alter our purchasing plans. Now, you didn't invite me to the green room with Commissioner Hogan, but if you had... I apologize I, it's, for that. It's okay. I had other things going on that day. But if you had, here's what I would have told him. I would have said, Commissioner, I think you should watch The Godfather 2, where Hyman Roth famously said, um, you know, I always make money for my partners, but I never ask any questions. <laughs> okay? Maybe you can relay that message across the Atlantic. I don't, th- I don't think he'll take the advice. Yes, yeah, so I, I think uh, uh, Commissioner Hogan's got his hands full. Yeah, all right. Uh, he, he well, he's really got his hands full too because we're about to do a trade deal with the UK, right? Uh, maybe. Well, I think yes, we both no, think Nuchin, it'll take longer than people think. Mnuchin says we're going to do one. Yes. Well, I, I don't doubt that and there's certainly enthusiasm among the leadership of both both economies. Uh, but for the, for the year 2020 – where the Brexit occurs January 31st, there's an 11-month negotiation that's supposed to result in new trade terms with Europe. That's going to occupy the time. So, so, so the United Kingdom will have to enter into a, a, a very complicated a negotiation for the 11 months remaining. And having said that, the, the uh, U.S. Uh, will probably need to wait at least to wait to finalize things until they know what the, what the agreement is between the United Kingdom and uh, and Europe. It's it's complicated. It it was all uh, it is also I think likely to end up as something small rather than large, and some of the same issues will come up. The as part of the EU, your uh, the UK has adopted the entire panoply of EU regulations on chickens, on chemicals, on everything. And one of the first things that President Trump told uh, Prime Minister Johnson was, uh, you're going to take our chickens. And Johnson said, oh, no, we're not. So some of the same issues are going to, uh, are going to be there just as they are with Europe. And the United States is going to say, you are now an independent party. You can do whatever you want, which is true. So accept our regulatory regimes, accept our genetically modified uh, crops, except our chickens, except our chemicals, our cars with our environmental standards, and stop worrying about the EU. Of course, the EU is going to point out that if you do that, it's going to make uh, your ability to access our market much more difficult. So the UK is going to be put in a complicated position. They're going to, we're going to tell them make a choice, and it's a choice they're not going to want to make. Well, is this a matter of Boris Johnson being able to say, oh, no, no, I'm not, while he's unsure whether Trump's going to get reelected. Because if Trump gets reelected, he maybe doesn't get to say that, right? That's an interesting question. I don't know how he would be calculating that. 
uh, he demonstrated uh, this week that he's capable of standing up to the president because he explicitly did not do what the president asked him to do on Huawei. Yeah. And parted company on that. So I don't think you should, uh, well, any of us should simply assume that this is going to be an easy negotiation That's where the, point. the British are going to roll over and do what the Americans demand. Right. But what I'm hoping for is a scenario where we don't let the perfect beat the enemy of the good. There is a lot of opportunity with the United Kingdom, particularly in financial services. I mean, to the extent that there are barriers between what happens in New York and what happens in the city of London, we had to remove them as rapidly as possible, deepen the integration there, and and make those financial centers by, by, by making them better integrated, making them each deeper and more potent and more influential in the world economy. I think that's in the, the interest of both countries. Well, let me ask Scott an uncomfortable question then. Ten years from now, is London still going to be a financial center now that they're out of the EU? I think if – to the extent that they become stronger and it becomes a, a deeper and more liquid pool of capital because of an agreement with the United States, I think the answer is yes. Um, mostly because there just aren't that many alternatives. Now, the, something may develop in Europe, okay? That that, but but to rival the city of London uh, in terms of depth and liquidity of markets, uh, the, the Europe a, a European bank would have a long way to go. Uh, and so I I think it's a hedge against uh, the decline of the city of London. That's, that's actually how I'd sell the I'm not so sure. I mean, this is a little bit like sand leaking out of the bag. You know, yeah. you're not going to see mass movement to Dusseldorf uh, or Frankfurt. But I think uh, companies, uh, financial institutions are already hedging their bets. They're staying in London, but they're building centers some other places. Yes. And, and we'll see what happens. Yes, but know-how is very persistent. It's geographically persistent. If you look at the amount of automotive R&D that's still done within a 40-mile radius of Detroit, Michigan – uh, I mean, they, and look, foreign auto companies put their innovation centers in places like Ann Arbor, Michigan. Why? It's because that's where the talent is. And autos are made all over the world now and all over the United States. But when it comes to know-how about the auto industry, it's it's the same reason Silicon Valley is still Silicon Valley. Right. Okay, and these the, these these things are quite persistent, despite the fact we have this we have basically a fifty state free trade agreement uh, through the Commerce Clause, and and capital is highly mobile in the United States. The, these centers do persist, and so I think there's something to the know-how, the sort of the the intangibles associated with with a business uh, that are really held in the in the brains of the of the people who walk out of the buildings every night that make them persist over time, almost regardless of, of, of other arrangements. Gentlemen, we will talk about this and much more next week. Thanks for being here. Uh, we'll get to it again. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.